I'm Cy Musiker. And I'm Joyce Miller, and this is Curtain Call. We're back with news about upcoming shows, all the culture from Reno to Davis, a mix of the Apollonian and the Dionysian, the smart and the fun. This month, we'll talk to an actor bringing Colette back to life. An artist collaborating with artificial intelligence. And we'll feature a singer and songwriter whose gorgeous music defies a traumatic past. And let's start there with a song from Alison Russell. That's Demons from Russell's new album, The Returner. The Canadian singer-songwriter has been in a lot of bands, Poe Girl, Birds of Chicago with her husband, and Our Native Daughters with Rhiannon Giddens, who we'll talk about in a minute. But her greatest success so far has come with two solo albums, Outside Child, which was nominated for several Grammys in 2021, and The Returner, released last month. Both solo efforts have focused on Russell's childhood as a survivor of emotional and sexual abuse. Her songs are courageous and passionate, and on this new album, they also rock. He was black, haven't you heard? The mother of all was dark and good. He was black, didn't you know? Is that why you hate my black skin so? Is that why you hate my black skin so? On the song, Eve Was Black, Russell describes a lynching, but the song ends with her wish to weave a world where every child is safe and loved and black is beautiful and good. She's such a resilient spirit, uh, Joyce, and and the songs have so much joy. uh, We can all use a lot of that right now. Russell's tour behind The Returner brings her and her band to Grass Valley Center for the Arts on Sunday evening, November 5th. And jumping to November 16th, the center hosts three great folk artists, Sonny War, Buffalo Nichols, and Lizzie No. Lizzie No's motto is, the role of the artist is to make revolution irresistible. So worthy. That's November 16th at the Center for the Arts. Uh, and a quick mention here, I'm going to go see Ramblin' Jack Elliott, a pioneer of the 1960s folk movement, old as dirt now at 92. Uh, we've talked about Elliott before, but he's just such a classic. It's worth seeing him. Uh, he's playing the Nevada Theater tomorrow night, November 4th, and even if his singing is a little wobbly, I bet he can still tell a good story. The night they invented champagne, it's plain as it can be, they thought of you and me. The night they invented champagne, they absolutely knew that all we'd want to do is fly to the sky on champagne and shout to everyone inside that since the world began, no woman or man has ever Nevada City is welcoming Colette to town, the French novelist, dancer, and mime, a woman with a very busy love life, including both men and women. 
Her writings inspired dozens of movies, including Gigi, from which we just heard a song. A very corny song. (laughs) (laughs) And Colette was once considered France's greatest writer. The year was 1893, the height of La Belle Époque, the beautiful era. Paris was a hurricane of parties, salons in Art Nouveau drawing rooms that featured such luminaries as Claude Debussy and Marcel Proust. We were all mixed together then, uh, artists, aristocrats, uh, nouveau riche speculators, and those ladies who are part of uh, the unique class they called the demi-monde. The demi-monde That's not Colette. She died in 1954, but actress Laurie Holt is playing Sidonie Gabrielle Colette in a show she created with poet and translator Zach Rogo, first staged in 2015. And Holt was supposed to do the play here in 2020, uh, but COVID got in the way. Holt is one of the troopers of Bay Area Theater, originating the role of Harper in Angels in America, and she's appeared in dozens of plays since then. We talked to her on Zoom about Colette. What makes Colette such a compelling figure, you know, really a hundred years after her time? I think what makes her so compelling for me is the sort of breadth and depth of her explorations of art, of what it means to be an artist, what it means to be a woman in the arts, of sexuality. She really, her favorite book that she wrote, she she claims, is uh, Le Pur et l'Impure, the, the Pure and the Impure. It's a book of essay kind of things that she wrote about love, sexuality, life, and how people make choices. I mean, what is what is sexuality and love together? What is it separate? I found that book so fascinating. It was an impetus for some of the lines that that I wrote in the play. I mean, Zach, really, I got to give Zach credit. Zach Rogo, it was his book and his research on Colette that launched this whole thing. And I, he, he really wrote, I think, a good two-thirds of the play, and I probably contributed a third. But then I also created all the characters and do the, all the characters. She's got such an international appeal, uh, as you point out. And, and she was a dancer. She's a mime. She had this extremely busy love life. She was France's greatest writer. So what is it like to put on her shoes for you to be, for a few minutes, this extraordinary international figure? It's wonderful. I love being Colette. And it start, when I started out doing it in San Francisco at the Marsh, I was absolutely terrified Colette died in 1954, and she lived through La Belle Epoque and the First World War and the German occupation of France. Is that part of the attraction, the the sweep of her story? Oh, yes, absolutely. All of those things are in the play. She lived through so many eras. That is all in the play. La Belle Epoque, then the First World War. The conceit is that it takes place in a kind of a lecture hall. And she's lect- she's talking, giving a talk in English about her generation, La Belle Epoque and the Anything Goes era of the 1920s. Meanwhile, I was making my living as a mime, performing in a three-person troupe. We were always on the road, one night in each venue. We appeared in every city in the provinces, each one with its first-class establishment. Uh-huh. Now, I happen to know that in almost all these first-class establishments, Cursal Casino, Casino Cursal, El Dorado, Eden Concert, you will find at the bottom of a staircase that smells of cabbage, a dressing room 
where you can smell the latrine and the same slop pail, so small but so dirty. <sighs> the melodramas that I appeared in there were only one act in a, in a big variety show. So we often went on between the acrobats and the, the jumping dogs. She was a journalist. She was on the front lines in World War I, writing for Le Matin and um, reporting from the front lines the stories that the young men told her. And then the Second World War, which was very complicated for her when she was in her third marriage. And Maurice was Jewish, and he was among the first thousand Jews that the Nazis took and put in a camp. It was not a death camp, thank God. But she also uh, wrote some columns for a Nazi-sympathizing newspaper, even as she was married to this Jewish man. That was, she says, she said to her daughter, because her daughter brings that up, <laughs> the character of her daughter, and says, oh, I know you're still writing for the collaborationist rags. And she says, I have never written anything positive about the Germans or the occupation, but I do what I have to do to keep Maurice alive. So she was primarily a novelist. And um, and then an essayist, and she wrote a column, which is also in the play, for um, the women, the French women's magazine, Marie Claire, a, <laughs> a column for young women, which is like so inappropriate if, if you know her history. <laughs> so, and, and you've also done a one-woman show on American poet Sylvia Plath, uh, an equally compelling writer. Uh, but one who committed suicide at 30. So how are Colette and Plath alike or different? Sylvia Plath was not stable mentally from the time she was young. I mean, she had issues. The thing about Plath, I mean, her she, like Colette, was way ahead of her time. I mean, there's a darkness to both of them, but it seems to me a, a different kind of darkness. And I can't imagine that Colette would ever have committed suicide. She just had such a strong sense of herself, full of life. We talked to Lori Holt via Zoom, and then we found out that she moved up to the foothills here uh, during COVID. So next time, we promise we'll talk to her in person. Lori Holt plays Colette in Colette Uncensored at the Nevada Theater on November 9th and 12th. voice of the Mavericks Raul Malo, the son of Cuban immigrants singing his composition Recuerdos. Together off and on for more than three decades, the Mavericks have cycled through genres, rock, country, and Americana. They're amazing. They've had 15 hits on the Billboard country charts, and they put on a great show with lots of visual energy. When they return to Grass Valley, they're expected to focus on their Spanish language album, in Espanol, released three years ago.
tiene tu You know, I have to say, I've never really been excited about the Mavericks. Oh, sigh. <laughs> I know. I've, I've been missing out. But I just love this album. And Malo and the band have never seen more themselves, and the songs are great. I just love that accordion. The Mavericks play the Center for the Arts November 14th. It's a great month at the Center. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Hello, I'm Stuart Smalley. Hello, that's Al Franken from eons ago as Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge for Franken, presumably the only Emmy-winning comedy writer to serve in the U.S. Senate. In 2018, he was forced to resign in his second term due to allegations of sexual misconduct. Yeah, and it's behavior, though, that seems almost quaint in retrospect, considering our most recent ex-president and Franken is a whole hell of a lot funnier. Ain't that the truth? Franken has bounced back into the public eye as a podcast host. He brings his political punditry and stand-up to the Center for the Arts on November 18th. And if you want to pay the price, you can have cocktails with Al before the show. Just like he's running for office, and maybe that would be a good thing. Uh, artificial intelligence, or AI, is the newest, the most promising, and the most Hello, terrifying Hal, advance ever in computer technology. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Picture HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, trying to kill its human shipmates, or the Terminator. Yeah, or the noble robots created by author Isaac Asimov, constrained by basic laws, always to protect human life. The promise of AI is equally ambiguous when it comes to its role in student work or journalism or visual art. That's where Alexander Rebin draws his inspiration. He's an artist who collaborates with AI, that's his term, creating the kind of text found on the walls of museums describing a painting or sculpture, and then he crafts the art to go with the description. A show of Rebin's work is at the Crocker Museum in Sacramento, and we joined Rebin in a gallery filled with a huge range of paintings and sculptures to talk about his show, AI Am I. And Alex, you wanted to start with a installation here, a kind of a sculpture in which you have a series of toilet plungers. Tell us about this and how it came to be. Yeah, so this sculpture is toilet plungers with more and more of the handle cut off. Um, and yeah, this was one of the first uh, ones that I made where GPT beta back in those days. 2020. Yes. I prompted it to the idea of creating a museum wall label because I thought that would be really interesting to see how it could like make artworks which didn't exist. So then I fed that text back in and it made a long description and then I did my best to fabricate the artwork that it described, which were a bunch of plungers. Right, and it's called A Short History of Plungers and Other Things That Go Plunge in the Night and it's supposedly a part of a school of art known as the plungers as, as you were saying, this is kind of a, a Dadaist idea. The AI actually knows about various art movements. Sure, in this case, it invented an art movement called plungism, and 
It describes it as a state of mind wherein the mind of an artist is in a state of flux and able to be influenced by all things, even plungers. Yeah, so then it just goes on to talk about how this movement went through New York City in the 70s, and this is all obviously fictional. So that's how a lot of this art came to be. You fed in these prompts that inspired the AI to create a wall text for an artwork, and then you created the artwork. Yeah, so either I created the artwork or I would get the artwork fabricated, say for like the bronze I have or the oil paintings or the, the marble. Those are things I, I can't do myself. And then, yeah, those are, those are brought into real life as close as I can to the wall label, but obviously the wall label doesn't describe everything, so there's still interpretation needed to be had. My question was, what was the prompt that you gave to get this output? Yes, that's one thing I don't usually disclose out of everything. Um, for the plungers in particular, back then, it wasn't quite prompting because GPT was doing text completion. So back then, you would start it with like a sentence and it would try to continue from there. Now, with the new GPTs, you are kind of prompting it like a conversation. So it'd be like, hey, can you produce a museum wall label that Dottis did, for example, or something of that sort. Um, so actually the way people interface with these uh, text generator systems have, have evolved since 2020. You've written that when you talk about AI, you're, not, you're talking about a machine learning algorithm, not a piece of software with a soul uh, <laughs> or an artistic imagination, really. Uh, what do you mean by that? The term AI conjures up this uh, sci-fi idea of things like the Terminator or consciousness, and that's really artificial general intelligence but I think the public perceives AI as that. Yeah, machine learning is a bit more of a term or deep learning that's more accurate. But it's not, it doesn't have an artistic imagination. And that's an interesting question. If you look around at some of these pieces that were described, I mean, could you describe this as creativity or the fact that it made something new? Is that imagination? I'm not sure I have the answer to that. It could go either way. Or maybe it's something new. Maybe it's some word for what this is doing that isn't like our imagination, but is something different and novel. I think we're still early <laughs> in, in this sort of technology. And when artists ask the question or worry that their jobs are in jeopardy from AI, what do you say to that? I think like automation throughout history, jobs are always um, in danger, for sure. I think there's a lot of concern, and rightfully so. And yeah, I think this is something we gotta, we gotta think through, just as uh, you know, automated looms changed how weavers worked. So it is something that we can look to history to see. Obviously, what's different now is we're seeing automation of creative labor. When in the past, you know, industrial revolution, we've seen automation of physical labor, which we understand at this point. So I think that's what we're coming to terms with. There's been so much fear around AI. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding people have about AI? Right now, I think a big misunderstanding is how far we are from the AI people imagine AI being, the actually human intelligent AI. So for example, an AI can find like a stop sign in a picture faster than a human can, but it's not gonna be able to like write poetry perhaps, you know. Or not very good poetry. Yeah, yeah, so we're seeing things like large language models that are now being able to perceive images and like write text about it and have these multimodal things, which is getting closer to what people think AI is, but still quite far away from what you'd imagine from the movies. Hal or, uh, or the Terminator. 
I think a lot of this technology looks like magic to people too. So I, th I think we anthropomorphize it more than we should. And when you anthropomorphize something, you give it a lot more agency than it actually has. So it's a very human trait. Let's look at some more art. For instance, right here, we have the dining window and it's a oil on canvas, but it's uh, supposedly produced by a guy named Ruby Rat Panish who's from Uzbek, and it's called The Dining Window, and it's a family sitting at a table eating. So how did this come to be? Yeah, so this started as the wall label you see, and then that is fed into a text-to-image system, which creates a picture based on that description. And then in this case, it was outpainted, so it was turned from a square image into a rectangular picture. And then that image is given to reproduction art painters who, by hand, use oil paint and linen to make the, the painting. So explain that process, who do you outsource this to? Yeah, so this one in particular was done in Dafan, China, in the reproduction painting village, where there's just artists working all day making Mona Lisas and Starry Nights, and they like working on this versus Mona Lisas over and over, because it's a bit more interesting. But I've also worked with artists in Italy and uh, the US. I have a bronze done by a foundry in, in Berkeley, a marble that was carved by a robot outside of New York City. So all sorts of different fabrication was. And I love reading these texts. I mean, these wildly silly, some of them texts, but which are in perfect art curator speak, for instance, in this thought-provoking work, viewers are presented with an arresting scene of three individuals engaged in the quotidian act of dining. The artist states, I'm interested in how the mundane, everyday activities of life become charged with an atmosphere of mystery. And that's Ruby Rat Panish, who's uh, fictional. He's an AI-created uh, artist, and that's an AI-created quote. Yeah, so the artist's names come from a custom model I made with something called an RNN, which is a neural net that I trained on a big list of, of names of artists. So all these artists' names are, are gibberish from that. <laughs> <laughs> and did you tinker with any of these descriptions at all, or this is straight from... AI. So I would call this an act of, of curation. So a lot of times, at least in the older system, I would get, say, a paragraph out. And then I would have, say, 100 paragraphs I'd go through to find one that I would like. And then you can feed that paragraph in, and then it will start generating more text. Now, with the newer systems that you do prompting and conversation with, I'm starting to get full wall labels out without having to do much of that back and forth. So now I'm kind of curating from, like, full chunks of text. So it's more of a process of having a lot of options to pick from. So not all the wall labels are this good or this funny. So that's part of me in here is that choosing of them. So you started creating this human-machine symbiotic art where you and the machines are working on art together back in 2012, I think. So you have a lot of experience. And what have you learned as you produce this stuff now? Yeah, I think what I've learned over time is like there's this balance we have with technology. And, you know, the hope is that we become in this sort of homeostasis with it. But I think at the end of the day, we really should ask, what do we want from technology? What do we want from this relationship? Because we are a technological species. If we didn't invent technology, we wouldn't be having this interview today. We wouldn't be inventing things like science. Um, we wouldn't have philosophy, right? We need to have invented the stone tools back in the day to get enough calories to really become who we are. So technology is more human, I think, than people realize. So what, or what do you make of the deep suspicions 
that many art makers have for AI, whether they're a visual artist like you or, or Hollywood actors? Yeah, I think a lot of people's worries are definitely founded. Um, you know, obviously their concerns are valid and, you know, like lots of tools of the past, it's going to dis disrupt a lot of things. Um, but again, I don't think we've seen a, like creative automation before, so we're still grappling with what that means. I loved this show, and I'm not sure we really captured how witty and smart and cool it is, despite the heavy subject. Even on a Sunday morning, there was a bit of a line at an interactive exhibit with a big video screen where people get to provide the prompts for images. And one little girl was providing prompts for pink unicorns and <laughs> jumping up and down with glee when the computer did her bidding and then let her choose the image she liked. Yeah, it is a great show. The exhibit AIMI with work by Alexander Rebin continues at the Crocker Museum in Sacramento through April 28th. And this is a good time to talk about how real Cyrus and I are. No artificial intelligence, only human intelligence goes into the crafting of our show. Or human dumbness. There's plenty of that to go around, <laughs> uh, and at least from my part. And that's why you should support KVMR during our fall fun drive. No soulless algorithms on the volunteer staff here. Maybe you've been listening to KVMR for years and never supported the station. How could you? Now's the time for you to step up and prove you too are human. Donate now by visiting our website and clicking on the organic pumpkin. And thanks from the bottom of our very real beating hearts. And here's a string super band. dozen Golden State bluegrass superstars, including mandolin master John Reichman, will convene at the side door in Sacramento a week from tonight for something called the California Bluegrass Reunion. The other luminaries are Bill Evans, Jim Nunnally, and Sharon Gilchrist, with Chad Manning and Brandon Goodman on twin fiddles. Mm. Every single one of these players is outstanding on at least one stringed instrument. Put them all together and it's bound to be a combustible combo. Yeah, save the date, November 10th. And next night, same venue, the side door in Sacramento, and a very different sound. Nevada County's own tumble will combine with Tony Passarell for a tribute to Wayne Shorter. He's the brilliant jazz composer and sax player who died last spring. That's the Nevada City band Tumble with a tribute to Wayne Shorter, November 11th. And now here's a marriage of European art song, Asian traditions, and Americana I just love. <laughs> That's Rhiannon Giddens, the singer, fiddler, and banjo player, 
and she's worked so hard to rediscover the black roots of bluegrass. Here she's singing the Japanese song Omoide, and I'm not sure that's pronounced right, meaning memories with the Silk Road Ensemble, a band formed years ago by Yo-Yo Ma to explore European and Asian musical traditions. And Giddens, trained in opera and folk, is now the artistic director for Silk Road, an unlikely pairing it might seem, but she's found the perfect project for the group, an exploration of the music of the Chinese, Black, and Irish communities that helped build the Transcontinental Railroad with little recognition, along with the Native American tribes whose lives the trains forever changed. Yeah, this project just sounds so cool, and Silk Road's ensemble is bringing its American Railroad concert to a bunch of Northern California venues. They're at Stanford, November 15th, the Mondavi Center, that's where we're seeing the show, November 16th, Zellerbach Hall in Berkeley, November 17th, and the Green Music Center in Sonoma on November 18th. And then I hope they get a break. And Giddens seems to be just about everywhere these days. That's an excerpt from Omar, the new opera with a libretto and music by Rhiannon Giddens. She is having a hot moment. Yeah, Omar is about the Muslim scholar Omar Ibn Said, sold into slavery in the 19th century in South Carolina. The opera is based on his own memoir, and the opera just won a Pulitzer. It's opening at San Francisco Opera Sunday, November 5th, and continues through November 21st. I'm going to see that in person at the Opera House, but in a plus for Foothill listeners, you can stay at home and buy tickets to stream Omar Live on November 11th at 7.30. Really worth it. And here's some of those shows just for our podcast listeners. Nobody mixes punk, blues, and boogie like Dave Alvin. Dave Alvin is touring again with his band, The Guilty Ones. This song comes from a collaboration of last year with Jimmy Dale Gilmore, not on this tour. But heck, uh, Dave Alvin is smart enough, good enough, and doggone it, people like him. Dave Alvin will make stops at Harlow's in Sacramento on November 16th, then Chico at the Women's Club November 17th, and then at the Fillmore with Los Lobos for that band's 50th anniversary concert. And Alvin's other outfit, the trippy jam band, Third Mind, put out its second album just this week. And just for you podcast listeners, this bonus track, I am in love with this sound.
That is Los Yesterdays, the retro brainchild of two hipsters, Gabriel Roland and his friend Victor Benavides, who started playing together in an Altadena garage. They're getting a little push these days from Daptone Records. Such a beautiful reinvention of 50s pop, great for low riders and slow dancers. Los Yesterdays plays Harlow's in Sacramento, December 2nd. I'm Cy Musiker, not a robot. I'm Joyce Miller, also not a robot. And, and this, this is Curtain Call, Call coming, coming to you from, from KVMR-FM, Nevada, Nevada City. City.